You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. All right, I'm here today on East Bay Yesterday with Rachel Brahinsky, the co-author of A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area, a new book just out on UC Press. And Rachel, we don't know each other well, but we have known each other for a very long time because you were a staff writer at the dearly departed alternative weekly newspaper, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, back when I was an intern there. And I believe it was 2004. As a historian, I'm so sad that so many of their archives aren't online or accessible really in any way anymore. So much important writing and history is essentially currently lost. Hopefully those archives will make their way online at some point. But as a former intern, I'm slightly relieved that that content is not accessible because somehow I was talked into posing for the nude beach issue back when I was there. So uh, there are certain certain things about that that uh, I'm okay with not being on the internet right now. But you pivoted to academia after journalism, and you are now an associate professor at University of San Francisco in the uh, Urban and Public Affairs Urban Studies and Politics program. And now you are an author. So just kind of starting out with a little bit of an overview of this project. Tell me about the structure of this book, A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area, because in some ways it resembles a kind of like a traditional city guide, like something that a tourist might pick up if they were interested in in learning about um, the area that they're visiting. But in other ways, it's really, really different. So what was your vision for creating this project? First, I just want to say thank you for having me on your show. I love what you do with East Bay yesterday, and it's, it's, so it's, it's fun to be able to be a part of it. And it, that is quite a memory um, of the Bay Guardian. I do not recall that issue. But uh, I, I will say that the word on the street is that there is an effort. It's slow because it's underfunded, but there's an effort underway to redigitize the entire Bay Guardian archive and get it all back online. It's just, I think, slow progress. And if you ever need paper copies, Tim Redman, who now runs 48 Hills, I believe has them all. He has the entire archive in his house, yeah. uh, as far as I know. So, well, you know, uh, my own modesty aside, uh, I would love to see The Guardian online, as well as back issues of uh, other local newspapers like the Oakland Tribune, uh, which are unfortunately inaccessible. I think that this is something that a lot of people don't realize. People think that everything is Googleable these days, but so many newspaper archives aren't accessible and and it's a real problem for for those of us interested in in history and especially local history here in the bay area but getting back to the question tell me a little bit about this book okay i'll do that so first of all i am the co-author of the book my co-author alexander tar is um, also a professor he's at worcester state in massachusetts now and I do want to say before talking about the book just that it wouldn't be possible without the contributions of many, many, many other people, including writers who gave us um, write-ups on many of the sites, and our photographer, Bruce Reinhardt, and then all of the people who contributed a single photo of a certain event or who helped connect us to historical photos and all of that, because the photos are a tremendous part of the book. And that gets me to the structure, which is your question. So I guess the way I've been describing this lately, and it seems to make the most sense to me, is that this is a, a social 
historical geographic take on the Bay Area as a region in the shape of a guidebook. So it's not, as you say, a traditional guide, but it may end up, I hope, in a bookstore next to traditional guides and people might pick it up sort of thinking that's what it is and then discovering that what they're going to learn is very different and deeper and you know, it's, a, it's an academic book, so we're making arguments, including the big one being that to think about San Francisco, you actually need to think about the region. And so that's why it is a guide to the Bay Area and not just to San Francisco, which is what we could have done and would, would have been a much easier project to do. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like there's another implicit argument just in the existence of this book on its own, which is that it's also kind of a critique of those traditional guidebooks and, and really the tourism industry in general, which the Bay Area, especially San Francisco, again, is so reliant on. So what do you feel like is maybe problematic or perhaps even unethical about the way that tourism is kind of sold to people in more standard run-of-the-mill guidebooks? Sure. I mean... You know, without critiquing specific books, the, you know, what's very different about what we're doing, I think that's the, the way I want to answer your question, is really to talk about how we're doing it differently, which is to educate, engage, inspire, but not to sell. So we're not selling, you know, we start the book in West Oakland, and one of the things we say in the intro is the reason we do that is not because it's hip, it's not because it's transit accessible, it's not because you can get to your tech job easily, and that's what the boosters will tell you now, the you know, realtors will tell you now. Instead, it's because a really, it's a really important historical place that embodies a lot of what you find throughout the entire region, from architecture to social justice histories to racial struggles and racial justice histories to cultural legacies, all of these other things kind of emerge there. Also, the, you know, the train, the transcontinental railroad used to stop there. And, you know, there's all of these ways that the, the kind of broader history of the region emerges from that one spot. So that's an example of how we approach things, that rather than trying to sell a neighborhood, we're trying to help people understand it, engage with it, respect it, learn to look for clues to the past, and that, I think, is a more interesting way to be a tourist. So, so, it, so I think, you know, this book is for people who want to understand the region. It can be an educational tool for even, I think, as early as probably eighth grade, but certainly for high school and for college students. But it can be a book for tourists, too, that just offers this different vision that's, that's about learning and engaging rather than consuming. Hi, everybody. Liam here. I just want to jump in to say that you might be noticing some noises in the background of this interview. Maybe a barking dog or the occasional plane passing overhead. That, of course, is because in the interest of safety and not wanting to take an unnecessary risk during a pandemic, we taped this interview outside. Fortunately, the air quality was quite wonderful on the day that we recorded this in Oakland, which is certainly something I don't take for granted these days. Unfortunately, one region of the East Bay where the air quality isn't always great, even when there's no wildfires, is a stretch of northeastern Contra Costa County, sometimes known as the Fossil Fuel Corridor. Now, back to my interview with Rachel Brahinsky, who shares the story behind this industrial cluster and why she decided to include it in A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area. So the fossil fuel corridor is a site in the book that really is multiple sites. And it was researched and written by Diana Negrin, who is uh, also a faculty member at USF. 
and other places. She teaches at Berkeley as well. And what we were trying to do with this one originally was develop a tour. And then we shrunk it back to the size of a site, but we kind of held on to multiple places. So it's a little bit of an unusual site in that we're saying it's this kind of region in the northern part of the East Bay, um, in the cities of Richmond and Rodeo, where there are a series of um, oil refineries that produce, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of pollution. And the photographs that go with that site show both the historic pollution in 1905, we've got standard oil belching out smoke, and then again, Chevron, which is the uh, legacy company from Standard Oil in 2017, belching out smoke again. And we know if you live in the Bay Area, you know that every once in a while you hear long before we all had to shelter in place, people in Richmond were sheltering in place on a semi-regular basis because of air quality problems. And so we talk about how that area historically came to be the place where these refineries are located and how communities have struggled against that. And also the, the entry offers an opportunity to think about the ways that people are kind of pushing for, I don't know that they call it a Green New Deal there, but it's the, you know, just transition activism. And um, in, in a way, the fossil fuel corridor is inspiring of a vision that's much bigger than just the city of Richmond, right? That's about green jobs and thinking about our sort of collective future around getting rid of fossil fuels. And so we use the entry to talk about all of those things. It's both, why is this here? What happens here? Why is this the problem? And then how have communities responded and challenged the environmental injustices? Because also it's, you know, this is largely in communities of color. So how have communities challenged those environmental injustices and then dreamt a bigger vision that would be transformative for their communities and then beyond? So that's what makes it, in many ways, a people's guide site, is that it's it's both the history of those struggles between capital and community, and it's also a place where you have examples of communities turning those struggles into something bigger than themselves. All right, well, I want to ask a couple more questions about some specific locations in the book, and let's just start with the cover of the book. There's a big image of the Port of Oakland on the bottom half of it, which I think most people are familiar with. Of course, the iconic cranes of the Port of Oakland that we all see when we're coming over the Bay Bridge. But there's a photograph in the upper left-hand corner that most people probably aren't as familiar with, which is also taken in Oakland um, a few decades prior. So can you describe what people will see when they look at the cover of the book in that photograph and what it represents. Yeah, absolutely. So the image that we have in the upper left-hand corner is a historical shot from the 1946 retail workers strike that became a broader kind of general strike in the city of Oakland. And this is a really important moment for labor in Oakland. It's different in many ways from the strike in San Francisco, which people often point to the general strike in San Francisco as, as much more successful. But this strike in 46 was centered around in many ways women's labor because it started from the retail establishments downtown, you know, all those great old buildings in downtown Oakland. Cons was there and that's what this photo is from and it's just a moment in the strike where um, basically the strike was initiated by it's really complicated. I'm, I'm hesitating because the story of the strike itself is fairly complex, but essentially it was initiated by 
uh, retail workers and then expanded. And because of the location, this is one of the things that we emphasize in the, the entry, because of the location at Latham Square, which is the intersection of multiple streets right in the middle of Oakland, it's where the streetcars split off um, to head into their different directions. And so, you know, it's one of the those branching lattice streets that you see all over Oakland. I mean, to this day, when there's protests in downtown Oakland, this is the area where they generally gather. Latham Square, for people who aren't familiar, is just basically off Ogawa Plaza or Oscar Grant Plaza, as some people call it. Yes, and we call it both in the book. That's also a site for us. So, right, so it's a site of kind of continued protest, but also because of the location, it's a place where back when the streetcar system was operating, you could shut down a lot more of Oakland, and that's what they did. Um, they blocked the streetcars and the streetcar operators complied, and it meant that transit and travel throughout the city came to a halt, essentially. And so for us, it represents multiple things, both the importance of geography and the way that people use kind of urban infrastructure to build alliances and solidarity. Also the strike itself as part of this important tradition of labor struggles in many, many, many different fields in the Bay Area. You know, the, the Bay Area is often known as a place where labor has been powerful, but it's usually through a particular set of stories when you go beyond the more known stories, you find labor struggles of women, you find labor struggles led by people of color, and those are not always the labor struggles that are the known ones as well. Right. And uh, again, we don't have to get into the whole history of the 1946 general strike because it is so complicated, and it really is a topic that I um, plan on delving into soon on a future episode of East Bay Yesterday. But one little anecdote about it that I love is about how when people were massing in the streets near this intersection at Latham Square, at least at the beginning of the strike, there was a celebratory mood in the air and bar owners allowed their jukeboxes to be pulled out of the front doors onto the street in order to provide a, uh, a rambunctious soundtrack for people to dance to as they, as they protested the injustices of the employers who refused to comply with the demands of the strikers. And that is something you still see in downtown Oakland when there's protests to this day. It's not jukeboxes anymore, of course, but people do have the mobile sound systems and there's a lot of dancing. And depending on what the protest is about, there can still be a very celebratory mood in the air as people are uh, marching for justice. I love that. And I think that's that's one of the things that motivated us also in thinking about sites across the region. But what you're getting at, this sort of intersection between politics and culture it's always there wherever you look, but there are particularities that you find. And so, and Oakland does have this characteristic of, of celebration with struggle uh, that you find. Yeah. And kind of sticking with this uh, idea of how history connects with contemporary issues, something that has been in the news a lot lately is controversy over the names of schools, government buildings, essentially what are we choosing to celebrate and remember when we're honoring this infrastructure by naming them after certain people. And something that's interesting is, of course, some of these names are fairly obvious. You know, things named after Confederate generals like Robert E. Lee, we know who he was, we know why he's problematic. But I feel like in a lot of these things that are named after people, most folks don't even know who these folks are that are being referred to by these names. Like, I probably lived in the Bay Area for many years before I knew who the Nimitz Freeway was named after, an admiral, a Navy Admiral Chester Nimitz. Um, and 
I like how in some entries the book gives the story behind some of the names of the uh, buildings that these people are named after. Like, for example, the Francis Albrecht Community Center in Berkeley. So can you tell me a little bit about Francis Albrecht and why there's a community center named after her in Berkeley? Yeah, so Francis, and I believe it's Albrecht. This was an entry that's... Uh, Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. It comes out of... Um, Donna Graves did the research and writing on this one, and... Donna is an incredible kind of community historian locally on a variety of things. She has a couple of other entries in the book. In this one, what we try to talk about, you know, get, it's both a story of Frances Albrecht and the community that she lived in, which is South Berkeley. So it's the story of the South Berkeley kind of inter-ethnic, often cooperative, communities, Japanese Americans, African Americans, um, living together in some ways a kind of similar settlement and mobility pattern as, as the Fillmore District in San Francisco. Um, but Francis migrated to uh, South Berkeley from, I believe it's Alabama, and she was the first African-American to run for city council in the city of Berkeley. She did not win. She was When the, was that? That was like the early 20th century? Or? Yeah, this would be early 40s that that happens. I'll have to double check the exact date. Hey everyone, it's Liam again, just jumping in with a quick fact check. Frances Albrecht ran for Berkeley City Council in 1939. No fake news here on East Bay Yesterday. Back to the show. But what I, do, what I can tell you is that she was also the first woman, black woman, I should say, to um, get a job at the Kaiser Shipyards. And although she was qualified, she was rejected and she fought um, and pressured and rallied community members and got that job, which then, as you know, I mean, there's this whole story that we often tell about the East Bay and how black women worked at the shipyard. And it's this transformative moment for the society. But we don't often realize that, you know, that was actually something that was resisted at first. And she broke through that. I guess it was a glass ceiling of the time, but she broke through that barrier. Um, she was involved in all of these other struggles as well. And so what we talk about in the entry is how she's you know, engaged in community organizing around labor struggles in her neighborhood. Um, we have an image from one of the campaigns, don't buy where you can't work. So trying to educate the community around injustices that you know people don't know necessarily that the the business that they're going to to buy their bread is not hiring people that look like them and so she was educating people around that and this is all in the the generally in Berkeley and South Berkeley um, in particular which you know it's an interesting neighborhood because there are all these other people as well you know um, is it Byron Rumford of the Fair Housing Act comes out of that neighborhood um, and there's a big statue of him not far from this community center a couple of maybe four or five blocks down the road, various others as well. And so the entry is an opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, and I think that that's another example of what you're talking about, of how certain locations can really be a hub of activity and activism begets more activism. And when people see the success of certain campaigns that inspires them to, to keep these efforts going and expand them. Um, and of course, Francis Albrecht's efforts really kind of predated the rise of the civil rights movement. And it's just another interesting connection of how when a lot of people think of the civil rights movement, they think of the Freedom Riders and things happening in Alabama and Mississippi, but there was all these regional efforts. And uh, right here in Oakland and Berkeley, there's some really great examples that you mentioned in the book. 
So earlier in the conversation, we talked about how this book is different from most guidebooks. And one entry that I think really exemplifies how different this book is, is one of the first entries of the East Bay section is the 1500 block of Adeline. Can you explain why you chose to highlight this block and what makes it so unique and important that you would want to include it as one of your very first entries in the East Bay section? Yeah, and so, and I will say in terms of it being first, each chapter is organized alphabetically and this is a an entry that begins with a number and so that is actually why it's first. Uh, but I'm glad that it's first because it tells the story of this neighborhood that is still one of the places that is, you know, it's sort of at the core of these really important moments. This, you know, this is the neighborhood where the Moms for Housing did their occupation last year. If the book had not been finished before that moment happened, I would have mentioned it in this entry. So right, Because Magnolia Street is just a few blocks away from 1500 Adeline. Absolutely. And we chose the block and not, there is one house that the entry is mostly about, which is a house that faced foreclosure and I believe it's Galen Newsom and Ace fought to stop the bank foreclosure and it took direct action and it took a whole campaign. Ultimately, I believe they won. And the the, the key there is that, you know, in the 2008 foreclosure, uh, I'll call it a crisis, you know, during, during the waves of foreclosures that, that hit the country that were part of the 08 crisis, the East Bay had really, really saw, I think, the worst impacts of that crisis. And, you know, San Francisco wasn't hit as badly. Certain neighborhoods in, in San Francisco were, but on the, on the whole, it wasn't as bad. But Oakland, foreclosures gutted whole neighborhoods in Oakland. And, and I think that we know that that's because the subprime mortgages specifically targeted people of color. And there's a lot more people of color in West Oakland, for example, than in San Francisco these days. That's true. And the, and the part of San Francisco that was hit the worst was the southeast, so Bayview Hunters Point and Viz Valley. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the reason that we didn't name the entry after the one house is we didn't want to send people to a person's private home because people may use this in that way. You know, it is a guidebook in the sense that people are going to go, want to go look at the places that we mentioned. So instead, we wanted to send them to the neighborhood and to this block where this particular action took place, but which is close to all of these other things, including Defremery Park, which is really important for the Black Panther Party and its organizing. And I think that's something I haven't said yet that's key about this neighborhood, which is that it was core for the organizing of the Black Panther Party, both culturally and politically, again, kind of bringing together questions of hunger and labor and economic justice and cultural autonomy, all of those things together through the Black Panther Party in this very neighborhood. And we have a picture of a little slice of the park in the book next to our description of what took place on this block. So a minute ago, you were talking about the foreclosure crisis of 2008 or so. And I know you've been working on this book for a long time. I think in the intro, you talk about how you started writing this in the aftermath of the Occupy movement, which was end of 2011, beginning in 2012, roughly almost a decade ago. So as you've been working on this project for nearly a decade, what are the biggest changes that you've noticed in the East Bay over this time? And like, how has the process of creating this book made you look at the East Bay differently? Mm. You know, in some ways, so much has changed, and in some ways, very little has changed. I, I think the, the, the biggest 
sort of point of change is the sort of constant churning in the region with evictions and rising housing costs. I mean, certainly, you know, the cost of a house in the East Bay in that, I'll call it an eight-year period, it's quite dramatic. In some neighborhoods, houses have doubled in price in that period, as you know, and in some maybe more. But um, certainly in North Oakland, which is uh, where I live, I've noticed that tendency of the, the doubling of prices. And I think in West Oakland, it may actually be even more, depending on exactly the date that you peg it to. But right. I remember in right around, you know, when the recovery, quote unquote, recovery from the economic crisis was happening in maybe 2012, 2013 or so, there was a couple years where zip codes in North Oakland and South Berkeley and kind of the what uh, realtors were starting to call the Nobi area, North Oakland, Berkeley, Emeryville, were the hottest, quote unquote, hottest zip codes in the nation in terms of the the biggest return on your investment if you're if you're a house flipper and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. So so that's change, and and you know, and the change in there is obviously families, households being displaced through these processes of foreclosure and eviction that, that happen when, housing, when the housing market does what it's been doing. But on the other hand, what hasn't changed, and I'm thinking particularly of Oakland right now as, as a, a really important center for the East Bay, but what hasn't changed is this sort of resilience and strength and cultural diversity and I almost want to call it a vivaciousness of the city, evident in things like, you know, over this past six months, as the demonstrations around racial justice took over the world, in Oakland, that translated into this incredible array of murals, right, which now the Oakland Museum and others are trying to preserve. And, and so there's both this expression of the, you know, a response to the call to get, get in the streets. You know, there were people in the streets daily. But also, there's both the marching and the demanding and the attention to policy, and there's also the attention to beauty and joy and culture and, and finding ways to remember the figures of this time through murals in particular right now, but there's other ways that people are doing it. And so, in that sense, that's a, that's a persistent quality that I feel like you see in some ways across the Bay Area over time and certainly in the East Bay over time. Um, this sort of refusal to back away in the face of major, major challenges. And this, you know, this year is, there are layers and layers and layers of struggle, but, but as you kind of, what we really got out of studying the region in this way is that we were reminded that you know these stories of the difficult present that we're living through have a lot in common with and to learn from the stories of the difficult past and both the challenges and the way that resistance continue has continued to take place in both angry and joyful ways right there's all of these different layers that keep building on each other I think one of the reasons why this is functional as a guidebook is that it's not 500 pages long. It's it's a few hundred pages, but it's you can carry it in a backpack without killing yourself, essentially, if you're trying to do some of these tours, if you're riding around to check out some of these locations or walking around. And so even though it is physically 
that's helpful to not have a giant cinder block to lug around, you must have had to cut a lot of great entries. And so I'm wondering if there's any sites, East Bay sites that you really love that you want to include that just that just couldn't make it in because you had to do so much editing on a project like this. Oh, the cutting room floor from the East Bay. Well, there's one that comes to mind right away in downtown Oakland. I was really interested in the Alice Street murals and started to research them. It was on my list forever and wasn't able to include it, but it's this kind of two parking lots with a series of murals painted at different historical periods that are threatened by development right now. They've actually been covered up. And now they've been covered up. Okay, so in the years that I've been thinking about it, it, you know, that's one of the things that's disappeared. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write about it was because I saw that they were threatened and I thought they might be gone by the time the book came out. But wasn't we weren't able to include it. I, I should just let people know if they are interested in knowing more about the Alice Street murals that, that there's a new documentary that just came out. I think it's just called Alice Street. And also one of the artists, Desi Mundo, who helped create the Alice Street murals, has done a giant new mural in downtown Oakland. I believe it's on the side of the Green Lining building that's kind of in a similar spirit of celebrating people of color's contributions to Oakland, both current and historical. And one other thing I want to add about the Alice Street mural is I do get pretty deep into the history of one of the people who was featured on that mural and talking about the pioneering dancer, Ruth Beckford, who was just an incredible woman, not only for her physical prowess on stage, but also her activism as well. She helped co-found the Black Panthers' first free breakfast program in Oakland. And I did a whole episode about her in honor of her. Um, She passed away a little over a year ago and was just an astonishing woman. Can you talk a little bit about the Emeryville Shell Mound? Because that is such an important location in the East Bay. And I just want to make sure that people understand the controversy over that memorial and how it continues to be a kind of focal point of Ohlone organizing to this day, even though the monument was built quite a while ago. Yeah, I mean, the monument is controversial. Basically, this was the site of one of, there were, you know, about 425 is the number that archaeologists have come up with. These these are ritual burial sites um, for Native people that were across the Bay Area. And this one, I think, was the largest. But it, it, you know, destroyed long ago by the development of Emeryville, layers and layers of industrial and then urban development, now it's, you know, if you go to the Bay Street Mall, this is where you'll find it. And there's this uh, memorial that is a small kind of representation of the shell mound that once was there. It's there because when the mall was being developed, this is now in the 1990s, as that development was underway, activists kind of revived the idea that the shell mound sites needed to be recognized and kind of said, well, wait a second, why are you building this mall on our sacred burial site, even though you cannot see it, it was here, we have evidence, you know, and, and so it was a, a big struggle. There's the street there is now named Shell Mound Way. But people feel, I think, bitter might be one word, mixed might be another word. I mean, it's a really, this is a, I don't know if sacrilegious is exactly the right framework, but to, you know, on the one hand, it's great that the place was recognized. 
On the other hand, it's recognized in this sort of very frozen, small way in the middle of a mall. And it's kind of, you know, this very important ritual site, this land that is so meaningful to uh, many, many people is, is stuck in the middle of a mall. And, you know. I think it's a really important story, the story of the Emeryville Shell Mound, because I've talked to Karina Gould about this, Karina Gould of the Segorite Land Trust, uh, because she was one of the people that was protesting against the Bay Street Mall and has used this shell mound as a kind of focal point of her organizing to educate people about Ohlone history. And on the one hand, you could say that that activism was unsuccessful because the mall was built. But on the other hand, you could say it was actually victorious because it helped really spark and lead to this huge revitalization of Ohlone culture and respect for Ohlone people that we're seeing now. And so it just goes to show, and this is a theme throughout your book, that oftentimes protest movements aren't successful in the first wave of what they're trying to accomplish. But a minute ago, you talked about like, you know, prison abolition struggle, for example. This is something that I think a lot of people are learning about this year. But this is, you know, in Oakland, it's specifically like critical resistance. These groups have been going back for decades. And so it's not necessarily about short term victories. It's about building movements and connecting struggles. And that's just such a great theme that I think your book accomplishes very well. Thank you. And I, I think I'm glad you mentioned that because that really is in some ways one of the most important dynamics of the book. And in terms of this Shell Mound site, every year, I think this still happens each year on Black Friday, the Friday after Thanksgiving, where we're all encouraged to shop our brains out. And what you find at the Shell Mound is people protesting and saying, don't shop. And actually, like, let's pause and recognize what this place was. And I do think, you know, that the recognition of that place has been part of, as you say, this sort of bigger revival. And I think people working right now in West Berkeley, there's a parking lot that covers where the West Berkeley shell mound was, but they're actually having some success in pushing back. And maybe, you know, what, what they would like to do is not have a memorial that's controlled by a private mall, but instead have a space that they can control themselves, have ritual practices, ceremonies, community, sharing food, lots of other things that I haven't thought of or that I don't know about, I'm sure. And so there is this way, like you said, it's both a success and a failure at the same time, the presence of, of, of the Shell Mound Memorial. It, it holds the memory. It doesn't do what people exactly wanted, but it does hold the, the visual record of the struggle, at least, to retain the memory. I think that's actually mostly what's there. So, yeah. 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 So it must have been a lot of fun to put this book together just because you got to go visit so many sites throughout the Bay Area and and dig into so much interesting research. Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, you know, it it really was fun. It's also, you know, it's part of the way that various people involved in the book do their teaching, including me. So I I teach an urban field class where once a week we spend the day walking and riding buses from place to place in a given area. And often there's a theme or a series of themes that we try to think about that just comes through from what's happening in the landscape or what's happening in a particular city. And when I think about the East Bay chapter, 
I know you were interested in in stories about particular sites, and I, I think the way that I want to respond to that is to to think about the connections between multiple sites. So there's this theme in the East Bay of racial justice struggles. So we deal with that in a variety of ways. We have a site that's um, Black Panther Park, which is Dover Park between 57th and 58th Streets in North Oakland, and it's a park that is the land is connected to what used to be Merritt College, the community college where Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, I believe, either met each other or went to school together and worked out the 10-point plan, um, which was the kind of manifesto of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, the original full name. And that neighborhood near the park is where several of them lived. There's a bakery on MLK. It's, It's all good. It's called It's All Good, and it is quite delicious. Uh, And it is basically a block away from what used to be Merritt College. There's now um, a senior educational center there. But the park, Andover Park, is this little, tiny little spot that... Is, you know, is said to have been a meeting place. I believe it was a parking lot. It's gone through a lot of different phases of development. But now it's a park with a playground, but it's also kind of special because Fat Beats has developed an edible perimeter. And so I think this was first Fat done. Beats, the community food justice program. Exactly, which has sites across That's a the P-H-A-T. Yes, it's P-Fat, <laughs> P-Fat. Very important. Uh, and, and so they have a little garden and they have work days on Sundays and they have the, you know, the entire perimeter of the park, fruit trees, kale, collards, artichokes, all sorts of stuff. There's a section devoted to native plants and, and various things like this. And they, uh, I believe, donate some of the food to organizations like the Auntie Francis organization, which is just a couple blocks away. Auntie Francis is a woman in the neighborhood who grew up in Black Panther households and has dealt with various struggles in her life and has turned that into helping to feed her community. And she's really keeping that legacy of the free breakfast program alive. Exactly. Just a few blocks away. And so some of that food gets grown there in Dover Park. You know, we also write about the the Kaiser Convention Center and one of the the story that we tell there are a lot of stories you could tell about the Convention Center the story that we tell is about how the KKK had a rally there and this this was in the 19 mid 1920s I believe or maybe early 1920s I believe so and the you know and so that there are these really the sort of beauty of multiculturalism is challenged um, in these really dark and violent ways constantly and that is the story the sort of push and pull of the Bay Area. Just to add on one quick little note about the Kaiser Convention Center, um, which used to be called the Oakland Auditorium, part of that building is now the Calvin Simmons Amphitheater, which is undergoing renovation right now, but that's named after the man who was the first black, the first African-American conductor of a major symphony in the United States. And he was the leader of the Oakland Orchestra, and I believe it was the 1970s, died tragically, uh, very young in a canoeing accident. But I think that goes to show within half a century how much progress there can be, that in this one building there can be a Ku Klux Klan rally. And then a few decades later, the first black symphony conductor can be honored by having this auditorium, this section of this auditorium named after him. And, you know, I love the answer you just gave a a second ago for so many reasons, but partially I think it's because what my project is about, what East Bay Yesterday about really is 
not just celebrating history for the sake of trivia or remembering things that happened in the past, but really understanding how we got here, figuring out how these struggles of earlier eras can inform people now who are trying to create a better future. And I think that your book is going to help expand people's idea of what the Bay Area used to be in order to help inform a vision of what it could be in the future. So I just want to say thanks a lot for for making this because it's certainly been uh, eye-opening for me. I've definitely learned quite a few things from reading it. That's, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I think that that's one of our goals is to just emphasize and nearly every essay does this, both the celebration and the challenge. And so this is not, it's not a feel good version of Bay Area history. It's very much trying to dig into the difficulty and then the community response. And so it's both about transformation and resistance and about the oppressions and kind of major struggles that that persist today. Okay, that's going to do it for my interview with Rachel Brahinsky, the co-author of A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area, out now on UC Press. I've got a few photos from the book, along with some other relevant images, posted on my site, eastbayyesterday.com. And now, since the book is a collaboration with lots of contributors, I also wanted to speak to one of the other writers, someone who developed quite a few of the East Bay-related entries. So coming up right now is my conversation with Diana Negrin da Silva, who has a long history of local activism and currently teaches geography at UC Berkeley. Stay tuned. Before we get started talking about your contributions to A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your connection to the East Bay? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name is Diana. I grew up, uh, I was born in Berkeley, but I grew up in Guadalajara for the first 11 years of my life. My parents had met in the Bay Area in 67, and, um, and I grew up between Mexico and the Bay Area. But I, I moved here when I was a pre-adolescent and went to high school, went to Berkeley High School, went to UC Berkeley, was a local activist, was really involved in the movement against um, incarceration and in favor of ethnic studies that a lot of young people organized around in the 1990s during the Pete Wilson years. Um, so I would say that that is a, a big part of my biography here in the Bay Area, just being being a local, being a kid here, being an adult here, raising kids here now, um, and being a geographer. You have contributed about a dozen or so entries to the People's Guide, and I want to ask you about a couple of those. Let's start in Oakland, and then we can move north from there. Jingletown. It's a neighborhood whose name, once you hear it once, you can't forget because it's just so evocative. Where is Jingletown? Where does that name come from? And what do you write about it in the book? Yeah, Jingletown is um, a place that uh, quite a lot of people don't really know exists even. And it's tucked away in kind of this 
interesting area between uh, kind of where Alameda and um, East Oakland, kind of the port meet. And one of the things that's been, that was really fun about this book was actually really thinking about these places, these different kind of pockets and, and corners in the Bay Area and the way that they speak to different periods of time. And in some instances, you know, the way that they've remade themselves over time. So with Jingletown, um, it is a place that um, was uh, part, was a shell mound uh, for the Wichuan people, and so um, you know, just kind of beginning with that, um, it's already a place that um, held a sacred importance. One can really tap into what this might have symbolized prior to it being industrialized and colonized, right? Are, are you referring to Union Point Park now? Yeah, so Union Point Park is a great place, I think, to explore Jingletown, to get these views of both the bay, but then behind you, if you're standing looking at the bay, you're going to have this industrial landscape and this post-industrial landscape, which is, you know, largely now exemplified through these lofts, that were previously workplaces. And so what's fascinating about Jingletown is that it has this, this symbolic sacred beginning. And as Oakland becomes colonized, this part of Oakland is really where you see the incipient the kind of initial stages of industrial capitalism. It is uh, very much a space of the working class. And so the name itself, Jingletown, comes from one of the first um, European migrations, which were the, the, the Portuguese and the Azorean workers. And apparently the name comes from them jingling their change in their pockets. Um, and they're always being, um, you know, there, it was very difficult kind of piecing this story together because there isn't that much out there, right? But in that little bit of history that I was able to piece together and by looking at the landscape, so kind of both using the archive and what we have on hand materially still present, you're able to piece together this story of these different generations of working class immigrants. And eventually in the 1970s, you have a very strong Mexican-American community that has moved into the area. You have a African-American community that has moved into the area. A lot of the kind of ethnic European folks have moved out slowly, right, as they are able to access economic mobility. And that means also mobility in terms of where they can live. And, um, and in this 1960s to early 1970s juncture, you see some really interesting multiracial organizing that goes on. And um, the it's called the Mary Help of Christians Catholic Church, which was founded by these uh, Portuguese immigrants, actually served as the place in which the Chicano Revolutionary Party's first breakfast program was implemented. So the Chicano Revolutionary Party, which was part of the Chicano movement, was already looking at the Black Panther Party to implement similar programming for the Mexican-American working class communities. And so it's just this fascinating little micro history that we get of working class people in the East Bay. Um, a lot of the history that we learn about kind of industrial labor doesn't take place necessarily. We don't hear too much about Oakland, even though there was the general strike. Or if you do, you hear more about like West Oakland, for example. Right, right. And so this is this very interesting little pocket. And if you think about this juncture where you have Alameda, where you have, you know, there, there's still a cement plant, there's still a few mills, um, but now it's, you know, started to really move into it becoming this art district. It's being branded as such. And it does have kind of this flashy little name that lends itself to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move a little bit 
farther north now, and I'm talking about one of your other entries, which is the South Berkeley Social Justice Corridor, which is just such an intense cluster of, I think, some of the institutions that sort of make Berkeley Berkeley, or at least like the kind of old school image that comes to mind when we think of like the radical Berkeley of the 60s and 70s. So can you describe what are the core institutions that make up this South Berkeley social justice corridor that you write about? Uh, I'm a Berkeley native, right, in many ways. And I grew up, uh, while, when I was a, a teenager, I was an activist. And one of the first places where I really he had a space in which I could explore a series of different issues was La Peña, the La Peña Cultural Center. And uh, I started writing this entry with this kind of ode, if you will, to La Peña as this space that was formed after the U.S.-supported coup of uh, Salvador Allende in Chile. It brought in the Pinochet dictatorship, September 11th, 1973. And you have a community of left Chilean activists that are dispersed to different countries, and some of them wind up here in the East Bay, which was already a place in which many people of the third world left congregated. And so... I mean, they were essentially political political refugees, right, because of all the executions that were taking place under the Pinochet regime? Absolutely. So it was founded by a group of both exiles, right, refugees and allies, right, American allies, with the idea of creating a space for political organizing, but also always knowing that culture, right, knowing that the, the trova music, right, the folklore is, is a part of that. And so, so the cultural aspect of La Peña was always also front and center. And the mural that, it, that is outside of La Peña, it was redone a few years ago, but it's named after, you know, and it kind of celebrates this Latin American kind of a revolutionary culture. And so in the 1980s, um, absolutely with all of the civil wars in Central America, you had La Peña become another, you know, once again, this space in which people from different communities could collectively organize, show their work, perform. And so I started kind of with this, this ode to La Peña as somebody who went to concerts, went to talks, performed there myself in high school. But there were these other spaces, right, that are next to there. So you have the Starry Plow, which also has this beautiful mural outside, uh, this Irish-themed pub that has also served as a place for spoken word and activism. And then across the street, you have the Homeless Action Center, you have Slingshot, the Long Hall, right? So there's these several left institutions that are on this block between, I guess it's uh, Prince and Woolsey on Shattuck. And when I was in high school, I would, because these were all ages, inclusive spaces, I gravitated to all of these. I went to meetings to organize around political prisoners, you know, Puerto Rican political prisoners. And, and so this particular entry really looks to give a little snapshot of this history as it's condensed in this one block in South Berkeley. And these are institutions that despite these changing times have remained, you know, and certainly they're trying to do their thing during the pandemic. 
but I think it's a really, South Berkeley in general is a really special place of activism, right? You have the Ashby BART station right next to there, where you have this, you know, the work of Ron Dellums and other local black Berkeley residents who fought to make the BART tracks go underground, right? Right, right. I believe that was Mabel Howard, who was one of the neighborhood people who really spearheaded that campaign. Exactly, right? You have the Ashby Flea Market that happens every weekend, that's been happening every weekend for now a couple of decades. And it's also this resilient space of culture and activism and inclusivity. Um, And so I think that these these really are these organic spaces when you look at what's changed. And as somebody who's a longtime Bay Area resident, I always feel happy to see that these institutions remain. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about Parchester Village. This is a really unique community up in the kind of North Richmond area with an important history. And you just do such a good job of summarizing how this village came to be and how they've fought to protect themselves against environmental injustice, which is so common in that region over all these years. So let's take a step back and start at the beginning. How did Parchester Village start and sort of what was the vision for it? What I what I found most striking about Parchester Village the first time that I went, I went because my partner was working on an art project there in the community at the community center, is that it's this little neighborhood that so many people could easily drive by and it tells this history of a place, of the making of a place that was done with intention in this really interesting geographical area of the Bay Area. So if you go on Richmond Parkway, you kind of pass by the Chevron refinery, you pass by this whole kind of uh, refinery corridor, which is also actually one of the entries in, in the People's Guide. And then you you start to see these these kind of gated homes, you have the Richmond Country Club, and then you descend into the bay and you have Point Benoit to your right, you have the Contra Costa County Jail that was contracting with ICE up until previously, and then you have this little village with this mural on the outside and it, ha- it says, Parchester Village Touches the World. And these are all one-story, single-family homes, and it's a development that was created after the Great Migration of Black folks from the South coming to work largely in the shipyards, right, during World War II. And as many people know, this was a time period that was rife with racial discrimination in housing and transportation and employment. And when it came to housing, there was a big challenge, right, as there was both, uh, you know, black people were banned um, from living in many neighborhoods, but also needed, right, for these um, wartime efforts. And so, This particular um, village, it was an initiative of Reverend Guthrie John Williams, who was a pastor uh, living in Richmond, looking to create a multiracial housing development. And it was going to be the first of its kind. And he found a developer who owned the property named uh, Fred Parr. And Fred Parr decided to donate Uh, the property for the project. He named it after, it's his last name, Parr, and his son, Chester, Parchester Village. And through this combination of largely black pastors and Fred Parr, you have the creation of this particular community. Now, interestingly, white folks didn't want to live there. And so it did become a black community. 
And many of the, the street names are named after pastors. Uh, one of the people who has been very involved in continuing the legacy of Parchester Village is Whitney Dotson. His father was also a founding pastor of Parchester Village and Whitney Dotson now sits on the East Bay Regional Parks District. And he was very involved as his father had been in protecting the marsh because Parchester Village sits right next to this beautiful marsh that leads you into, you know, Point Pinole. Um, and there's this beautiful quote that I found in the Richmond Confidential by Mary Peace Head, who when she saw that that was where she was going to live, she, she said, are you sure this is for black folks? You know, so the beauty of the terrain, despite the, the, the refineries that are very close by um, is something that was prized by many. And so over the years, there have been threats, there has been interest to develop it into other things. And the Dotson family, along with other community members, have worked to create, to keep it as a marsh. And now it is the Dotson family marsh. Um, so it's, a, I think, another example of a community that was founded from a grassroots effort um, with particular intentions. And, you know, now one could say that it is more multiracial as demographics have changed. Many of the new residents of Parchester Village are Latino. And it's, you know, if, if you have the privilege to know somebody there and, and to be able to go to Parchester Village, you'll see that residents sell things out of their homes. You know, there's this whole, because it's a very isolated area in terms of stores, in terms of public transport. It was one of the struggles, actually, of people of Parchester Village was to make sure that as a part of unincorporated Richmond, their children had access to the Richmond public schools, that they had access to transportation. And so I think you, you see this continuous um, right to the city struggle, if you will, with Parchester Village. And another element that I think is really beautiful about this story is the way that it shows this arc of en environmental and racial justice as exemplified through the Dotson family. Okay, that's going to do it for my conversation with Diana Negrin da Silva about her contributions to A People's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area, a new book out now on UC Press. But before we go, I just wanted to mention that Whitney Dotson, the environmental justice advocate and former Park District board member from Parchester Village, who Diana just mentioned, he passed away earlier this year. Rest in peace, Whitney Dotson. If you want to pay respects to his legacy, you can go visit the Dotson Family Marsh in Point Pinole. And just a quick reminder that you can find photos related to this episode at eastbayyesterday.com. And while you're there, if you can make a donation to help support my ability to keep making this show, I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you can't afford that, just spread the word. Tell people who might be interested to check out East Bay Yesterday. That would be great, too. Thanks again for listening. And as always, I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. I'll be back soon with more stories of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>